Welcome back to the program. If I said that we were going to spend time talking about authoritarian politics, the religious right, the rise of Christian fundamentalism, a demographic crisis facing one political party, and the continued rise of military power, you could easily assume we were going to be talking about the U.S. In fact, these same forces are at play in greater Israel, and they constantly are reinforced, perhaps, by the most powerful political lobby in the United States. The complexity of Israeli politics, its relationship with the U.S., its impact on politics, are all issues that exist not in the abstract world of policy wonks, but each and every day impact the lives of people on the ground in Israel, Gaza, and the Middle East. We're going to talk about all of this today with my guest, Max Blumenthal. He's an award-winning journalist and best-selling author whose articles and documentaries have appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the Daily Beast, and the Nation. He's the author of the previous book, Republican Gomorrah, Inside the Movement that Shattered the Party. And it is my pleasure to welcome Max Blumenthal to the program to talk about his latest work, Goliath, Life and Loathing in Greater Israel. Max Blumenthal, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be on with you. It's great to have you here. I want to begin by talking a little bit about how Israeli politics changed in 2008-2009, because certainly whatever the forces were that were existing before that really gained traction in 2008-2009. Talk a little about that. Yeah, great question. Um, that was really the, and this is what my book deals with, which is the fulfillment of a process that began after the Second Intifada um, and after the Second Intifada was suppressed, uh, walls were built, and Israel basically unilaterally separated itself from the Palestinian territories, leading to an entrenchment and rise in right-wing attitudes in the country. Um, and this was fulfilled with the 2008-2009 national, national election campaign carried out against the backdrop of Operation Cast Lead, which was the Israeli attack on the Gaza Strip that left 1,400 Palestinians living in this besieged territory dead, including 313 children um, and civilians. Um, well, actually, according to Beth Selim, the Israeli Human Rights Group, a majority of those killed were civilians. So uh, right-wing attitudes peaked in Israel. Avigdor Lieberman, who ran his campaign on, the, on a slogan of uh, no loyalty, no citizenship, pledging to implement laws, stripping Palestinian citizens of Israel of their citizenship uh, was uh, the not became the number three party and he became the foreign minister of the face of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu of Likud, who had previously called in 1989 for mass expulsions of Palestinians, who was known as a hardline right-winger, became the prime minister, and members of his party in their 30s and 40s, much younger than him, um, who were advocating uh, annexing much of the West Bank, moved into influential positions. And the Labour Party, known as kind of the center-left party in Israel, moved into what I consider to be kind of a permanent position of opposition. And at this point, by now, they've basically given up on the idea of the two-state solution and the peace process and are focused on um, internal domestic issues like the price of cottage cheese and the national insurance system. After the last election, um, back in January, uh, Netanyahu has really consolidated his dominance. And there's a recent poll by Globes, uh, the Israeli publication, uh, which uh, states pretty clearly that there is nothing, that there is no alternative to Likud. In other words, Netanyahu has no clear rival or challenger except within his party among people who are actually further to the right than him. And 
those right wingers would basically be unacceptable to America because many of them don't even speak English. And those who do openly declare that two-state solution is completely dead, um, I, I happen to agree with that, and that the West Bank should be annexed. There can never be a Palestinian state, and so Palestinians who live in the big cities in the West Bank should just get Jordanian citizenship. And that would bring as many former Israeli prime ministers, from Ehud Omar to Ehud Barak, have said that would bring apartheid out into the open. So that's the situation we're looking at politically, and what I do in my book is explain how it's affecting the, the, the new laws that are being passed in Israel, how it's affecting people on both sides of the green line, and uh, how it's leading to a uh, future uh, that of complete uncertainty where there is no clear uh, political solution. Talk a little bit about the internal politics in Israel and what is it that allowed Netanyahu to consolidate power the way he has and what was it in the general population that engendered the strong support for him that we've seen? Well, Netanyahu campaigns on security and Israeli, uh, most Israeli Jews, especially of the younger generation, aren't really concerned about getting uh, getting a two-state solution if they can enjoy a one-way peace. And so, as I said, there was a process that began um, that had been that had been in play for over a decade, in which um, the state of Israel sought to unilaterally separate itself from the Palestinians. This was actually carried out during the peace process, first by Yitzhak Rabin, the Labour Party Prime Minister, who began fencing off the Gaza Strip and revoking Palestinian work permits by the thousands. It continued under his successor, Shimon Peres, who was actually building tens of thousands of settlements after winning a Nobel Peace Prize and laying uh, and, and, and continuing to strip more and more Palestinians of work permits, imposing checkpoints in the West Bank, it very much hardened under Ehud Barak, who was his successor of the Labour Party. And so by the time Ariel Sharon, you know, the bulldozer, this um, historic hardliner who comes out of, you know, the Israeli right, is a hero to many right-wing Israelis, comes into power, um, there, there's already a foundation for physical separation from Palestinians. And he builds the massive 600-kilometer uh, separation wall in and around the West Bank, expropriating lots of Palestinian farmland, severing villages in half, and basically surrounding the major um, Israeli settlement blocks. And Palestinians disappear from Israeli life. Now, um, many people think of the, those walls as security measures, and that's how they've been sold to the American public. But in 2001, when, in 2003, when Netanyahu endorsed the separation wall, he said this will prevent demographic spillover. And that's really what it's about. It's about consolidating the Jewish majority in Israel. In the United States, we don't have to have a white Christian majority um, to consider this country America. But in Israel, if you challenge the Jewish demographic majority, you're accused of destroying Israel. So that's what these walls were about. And what these walls did was they uh, produced the one-way peace where Israelis no longer had to... Israeli Jews no longer had to deal with Palestinians as political partner, potential political partners. They didn't have to address their grievances. And at the same time, they were able to, uh, there was just a huge campaign of 
of demonization to continue the campaign against Palestinian citizens of Israel, against the 20% of the Israeli public, which is, which is Palestinian, um, to basically get them out of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, ban them, to pass laws stripping them of their citizenship, to somehow move them out of Israel. So the crisis continued, and Netanyahu comes to power um, and says, look, I'm standing at the top of, of you know, I'm, I'm, I'm prime minister in the most peaceful time ever. There are no suicide bombings. There are no, there's very little Palestinian resistance. Why do we need to make a deal? Why do we need to listen to the other side? And it worked. That kind of rhetoric works. And then you look at the youth attitudes in Israeli, especially among Israeli high schoolers. Um, the attitudes are growing more and more right wing. A uh, majority of, his, of young Israelis have stated in poll after poll by the Israeli Democracy Institute that they would refuse to sit in a classroom with a fellow Arab. Um, most Israelis in the most recent Israeli Democracy Institute stated that they would refuse to have a neighbor who is a foreign worker, meaning a non-Jewish African, since tens of thousands of them are living in Israel now. Um, and, and that a majority would also refuse to have an Arab neighbor. So the, this, is, this is really the result of top-level incitement um, working its way down into the Israeli public and the way the education system works, the fact that the occupation has been going on for 47 or 48 years without any real dialogue um, with Palestinian society. So it's the separation that is the key political factor in understanding the political environment in Israel today, the one-way peace, and what Netanyahu refers to as peace without peace. In other words, that we can have a peaceful existence without reaching a deal with the Palestinians. One of the things that was particularly noteworthy is that when Netanyahu was, was in the U.S. a couple of weeks ago and addressed the United Nations, that really, maybe for the first time, the discussion of the Palestinian issue was almost non-existent. It was completely overshadowed by discussion of Iran. Yeah, I talk about this. I write, I write about Netanyahu in my book as the salesman, that he's kind of this really, um, he's, he's like a, a used car salesman, and he knows that he's selling damaged goods, but he wants to sell it anyway. Um, and he's even said that, you know, he's even acknowledged in his own books, in his first book, A Durable Peace, that, you know, while there may be these horrible things happening in the West Bank, we have to, as he said, frame them in a way so that we're not framed. And so back in the 90s, he had Iraq and Saddam Hussein. You read Netanyahu's early writings, which I um, elucidate at length and discuss at length in my book. He was talking about how Saddam Hussein has nuclear weapons and the U.S. has to invade Iraq. And the issue is not the Palestinians. The issue is Saddam Hussein, who's funding the Palestinians and who will eventually destroy the Jewish state and bring about a second Holocaust. Of course, we found out that all of that wasn't true uh, when the United States went ahead and did that. And Netanyahu has recycled that kind of rhetoric um, to demand a U.S. attack on Iran. Uh, and this has served great utility. Netanyahu hasn't got his attack on Iran. Netanyahu is basically, uh, Obama has basically rebuked him through, so far through this historic phone call with his counterpart in Iran, Hassan Rouhani. It was definitely a rebuke to Netanyahu. But Netanyahu has managed to disappear the Palestinians from the discussion, not just in Israel, but in the U.S. And so when Netanyahu came to the U.N., he barely mentioned the Palestinians uh, three or four times. This is maybe the maximum time he mentioned Palestinians. He mentioned Iran over 40 times. So this is 
and, 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 and when you hear Obama talking about Israel and when he's sending his diplomats to Israel, the discussion's all about Iran. In fact, when I go on any network to talk about the issue of Israel, um, what I'm asked about is Iran or more recently Syria. I, I did this bizarre interview with an international network where I was in the heart of Ramallah and I was actually sitting at the top of buildings so there were settlements behind me and all the questions were about Syria and I said, do you know where I'm sitting? Do you know what's behind me? And John Kerry was actually in the country. Uh, no one wanted to talk about the peace process. That's basically where the peace process is and what that, and that's another huge accomplishment of Netanyahu is basically disappearing the Palestinian issue from the international arena. And that's understood among a lot of Israelis, but especially among the Israeli military intelligence apparatus. And so they're very comfortable with Netanyahu, someone that they've distrusted because he's not uh, the army hero that Ehud Barak is, and he is not the kind of um, person who's traditionally enjoyed a lot of credibility among the military, but they now are very comfortable with him. Um, what needs to happen in the U.S. is that a lot of analysts have this anachronistic view of Netanyahu that he's a potential peacemaker because he did cut a few deals in the late 90s, which he's reneged on 100%. Um, and they need to listen to his rhetoric in Hebrew uh, when he recently went to Bar Ilan University in Israel, which is the academic base of the religious nationalist movement, and gave a, a national security speech to the Israeli public and there he did address the Palestinians. And he said that they're not, um, they're, that Palestinian resistance does not, to Israel doesn't derive from resentment of occupation or colonialism. It derives from um, hatred of Jews. He said there's a poisonous tumor in Palestinian society that needs to be removed. It's called anti-Semitism. So he's basically done away with the two-state solution there because it's not going to address any real grievance and Palestinians basically need to become Zionists. He went on to accuse Palestinians of um, direct involvement in the final solution, the extermination of Jews in Europe and the slaughter of 4,000 Jewish children um, in Poland, which is completely false. It's a claim that I heard Alan Dershowitz bandy about once, but I'm not sure where Netanyahu gets it from, but this is more of the kind of incitement you hear from Israeli leadership that, look, the Palestinians are Nazis. Okay, well, how does a young person who's going into the army, who's going to serve in the West Bank, who hears the prime minister say that they're going to fight Nazis who killed Jewish children in Europe, receive that? Uh, I think that's incredibly dangerous rhetoric, and it tells you what kind of partner for peace Netanyahu is. Why hasn't there been more of a progressive movement inside Israel, even though it might be a minority movement at this point, why haven't we heard more from it? Yeah, that's an important question. I mean, the main reason is um, full military conscription, that all Israeli young men and women have to go to the army um, at age 18, and so they're prepared as soon as they enter school to become soldiers. There's a culture of military, a very militarized culture in Israel. Um, a, Ger a German study that analyzed the uh, militarization in countries around the world found Israel was far and away the most militarized country in the world. And while, you know, Israeli leaders since Netanyahu have said the army is actually a force for democratization, I found a different story when I looked at the Israeli education system. When I looked at what happened at a preschool in Holon, which is a, a suburb of Tel Aviv, and children were lined up before a board which asked them, 
who wants to kill us? And then it had lines pointing to Arabs, Nazis, Egyptians, Persians, and then another line to another question, what do we need? And then finally a line pointing to the answer, we need a state. And that this indoctrination process continues throughout elementary school and throughout high school um, until many uh, young Israelis are sent to Auschwitz on the March of the Living, where they march through uh, what was once a death camp in Poland alongside his uniformed Israeli soldiers and Israeli police officers. Uh, occasionally, Israeli jets will fly overhead. And they're entering this camp with a great deal of skepticism about serving in the army because they have seen images of <clears throat> the oppression of Palestinians on TV. Um, but they, they, their tour culminates and they have a guide who's um, got pretty clear intentions. Um, their tour culminates in a death chamber, in a gas chamber, where uh, Jews were slaughtered, and they're asked to take on the persona of Jewish children who were slaughtered there. And one by one, um, they break down, and polls show of um, Israeli youth who've been on this tour, hundreds of thousands have been on this tour, that they develop increasingly nationalistic attitudes afterwards and develop a more positive opinion of the army which is the exact point. They're sent on it at age 17, right before entering the army. And so there's indoctrination from preschool to high school. And I profile in my book a group of um, mostly middle-aged feminist women in Tel Aviv who have attempted to counter this culture of militarization. They're called New Profile. And they've been counseling the hundreds and hundreds of young Israeli Jews who um, come to them and say they don't want to do army service for whatever reason. I don't want to abuse Palestinians or it just doesn't feel right. And these women have been called in for interrogations. They've had their computers seized and they're being monitored by the Shin Bet, Israel's general security service. So you see uh, a re a repression of those who try to resist the culture of militarization, which helps explain why there, there are so few open dissidents in Israeli society and why there's not a, a very strong and cohesive progressive movement um, to resist the occupation. But more than that, it's really indoctrination. And, that, and I, I can point to poll after poll of Israeli youth attitudes which reflect the dangers of this indoctrination. It's really something that I wanted to get into even more extensively in my book than Israeli politics because I think this is what's behind um, the right-wing what might be a permanent right-wing majority in Israel is a right, definitely a right-wing trend. What about the kabuki dance that we're still seeing play out on an international stage with respect to a quote-unquote peace process? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's really fascinating to watch. Um, John Kerry has given a nine-month timetable for Israel and the Palestinian Authority, which has very little credibility on the ground in the West Bank to negotiate for a Palestinian state. And Netanyahu has told the U.S. that he's committed to peace talks, which, you know, the operative word being talks, because Netanyahu's predecessor, uh, his boss and mentor, Yitzhak Shamir, who was prime minister in Israel at the dawn of the peace process in the late 80s and early 90s, and who was a former um, right-wing underground fighter from the Stern Gang, um, which carried out the Darya Sin massacre back in 1948. He revealed after years of engaging in fruitless talks with the U.S. that he had a 10-year plan 
to move 500,000 Jewish settlers into the West Bank under cover of peace talks. And that's what Netanyahu is continuing to do. It's what pretty much every prime minister, maybe with the exception of Yitzhak Rabin, has done, which is talk and talk and talk and build more and more, as many settlements as he can, um, just continue to advance the facts on the ground beneath the cover of these talks. Because the Palestinian Authority, when they enter into any round of negotiations, is basically locked in and there's nothing they can do once they've committed to a nine-month timetable. And so in the West Bank, you're seeing a run on settlement activity. You're seeing massive demolitions um, in, in rural Palestinian areas. And uh, as, as long as the peace talks are going on, the, the toxins that have entered the veins of, Israeli, um, of the Israeli political system um, will not reach the heart, and the crisis won't explode. And so, it's, they're, and they're basically buying more and more time to continue this process, which will eventually, um, tr- possibly trigger this kind of Terminator gene, because the project in the West Bank of colonization has gotten so expansive and so deep that there actually are about half a million Jewish settlers there. One out of seven Israeli citizens lives in the West Bank. And meanwhile, the Gaza Strip, where two million Palestinians live, has been completely severed from the West Bank. No one talks about it as part of a future Palestinian state, and it's under perpetual siege. Um, it's, you know, uh, the conditions in the Gaza Strip have gotten so bad. Um, remember, this is a coastal territory with a long fishing tradition, but fishermen are banned from fishing more than three kilometers out at sea. So they've had to start importing fish through tunnels. And since this, the coup in Egypt, the Egyptian regime has filled up 80% of tunnels. So there are now food and gas shortages. There's really, so the U.S. really has no solution. And it's not, this isn't about having a solution. Peace talks are about talking and talking and talking and buying Israel more time and giving it more cover. Talk a little bit about the Palestinian response. Certainly there on the ground, they see what has transpired, particularly since 2008-2009. Talk a little bit about the Palestinian, the political Palestinian response. Well, I, I profile in my book, I, go, I spend a lot of time in Palestinian villages that are close to the Green Line, whose land has been expropriated by the separation wall. And they started... A, what they call the popular struggle, which is basically an uh, unarmed protest movement against the wall. Um, they're, they're doing, using Gandhi-esque tactics that, you know, for years we've heard, where's the Palestinian Gandhi? So I went to the villages where they were and I watched the repression of these protests. Repression with rubber bullets, with tear gas, but also with night raids. And I spent a lot of time in Israeli military courts as the leaders of these protests who have been, done nothing but protest on their own land, uh, were arrested at night and put on trial and held for months and months and months and even years at a time without uh, without charges. They were put under administrative detention. And at this point, the popular struggle, which is something that I think every American should have found deeply inspiring, I certainly did, um, has been more or less suppressed. It didn't spread to other villages and it didn't spread to Palestinian cities, which are also occupied. And so um, as the peace talks have broken down or basically been reduced to what you call, correctly called kabuki theater, we see in the West Bank an autocratic, almost uh, uh, ossified um, 
elitist leadership um, attempt to um, retrench its position. Um, it's the Palestinian Authority under Mahmoud Abbas, and they're funded um, enti almost entirely by the outside world through um, NGOs, through the U.S. Israel is basically their tax collector um, through the Gulf regimes, through Jordan. And they have very little internal credibility, but what they do have is they've employed one out of four Palestinians in the West Bank. The whole West Bank exists on this kind of feeding tube, and the feeding tube can be cut on cut off at any point when Palestinians resist. They've lost their whole farming economy and now rely entirely on Israeli goods. So those goods can be cut off if they resist. And people are deeply in debt because they've been told, you know, you can get a new car. We have an economic peace with Israel. You can get a new house. You can get a, a cell phone. Just put it all on credit, which increases the desire for what is basically Palestinian Authority welfare from the outside. So there's very little room um, politically or economically for Palestinians to rise up and have any kind of um, protest movement of their own in the West Bank. And this is, this is the model. This is, what they, this is what the point was. It's a clear neoliberal project um, using this kind of um, debt economy to basically buy people's complicity in a project of occupation. And we see it here in the United States um, that people are increasingly that the middle class is weaker than ever, people are deeply in debt, and they have little means of uh, engaging in protest movements like Occupy. So I think we have to look at the situation of the Palestinians as something that's being globalized and exported, and that Palestinians are sort of the canary in the coal mine. Um, and if, 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 if something isn't done about their situation and the status quo is not upended, uh, it will spread outwards peripatetically. I think it's already reaching us here. What is the objective of the Israeli lobby in the U.S. at this point? It's, the Israeli lobby is engaged in a fighting retreat. Um, they've basically lost the battle to portray Israel as the only democracy in the Middle East. And they never were able to get the two-state solution that would have conferred legitimacy on Israel. So their goal right now is to basically buy off American politicians and intimidate critics of Israel. It's very simple. So you see um, you know, Congress voting on sanction bill after sanction bill, 100 to nothing in the Senate, and these bills are basically crafted by AIPAC or by um, other wings of the Israel lobby. Um, there's a guy named Mark Dubovitz who works for the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies who writes all the language of the Iran sanction, or writes much of the language of the Iran sanctions bills, and he is, uh, you know, the FD, FDD, the group I mentioned, is funded by Sheldon Adelson, who is also Netanyahu's key funder. Um, so you see it at the top with Congress being basically um, bought off, but also you see it at a grassroots level. Uh, recently, some activists in Boston attempted to put um, on the Boston uh, subway posters showing, uh, documenting the loss of Palestinian land since 1948 and how Palestinians are now confined to these very small areas, these small Bantu stands of the West Bank and, in, and to the Gaza Strip. Um, and the, the Boston uh, Transit Authority has just taken these um, ads down, which were factual because of pressure from the Israel lobby. So they're just trying to... Apply a complete cordon of silence over the conversation, even at the grassroots level, 
or below the grassroots in the subway. I mean, what I'm aiming to do with my book is at least loosen the cordon of silence, if not break through it entirely. And it's really, I'm really depending on people like you who are willing to entertain this conversation, who are brave enough to just to listen to the ideas and the facts on the ground that are contained in my book. And, you know, in contrast to my last book tour, Republican Gomorrah, um, not many people have come forward to, uh, to hear these ideas. Um, there's a just massive intimidation among the American media, and I find that really depressing. What is your sense of what will happen to greater Israel if the current situation continues? Well, you, just, you, you, look at, you look at my book and you look at all the horrors on, that are playing out on the ground, and you can just imagine that they will deepen and uh, the trend, the right-wing trend will accelerate. Now, I don't know where this all leads. It could be that, you know, in 20 years we're looking at an extreme religious nationalist fundamentalist state um, in Israel. Um, the Palestinians have been completely pacified and the United States continues to support it. And there's, you know, people like me are still, um, you know, going on radio shows complaining about it. That could very well happen. Uh, I don't know how this ends. I think that's what David Petraeus said to Paula Broadwell. Tell me how this ends. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but I do know that the right-wing trends will accelerate and that they're playing out in a very ugly way. I write in my book about the burgeoning anti-miscegenation movement in Israel. Um, this is a movement dedicated to preventing relationships between Jews and Arabs, specifically Jewish women and Arab men. It's a there's a group called Lehava, which is gaining a lot of strength. And its sister group, Hemla, or Mercy, is funded partly by the Israeli government. And they run a home for women who have supposedly been rescued from Arab boyfriends. And Lehava has an co anti-miscegenation coast guard where they warn Jewish women on the beach not to date Arab men. They put posters around Jerusalem warning Arab men of harsh consequences if they're caught dating Arab women. They've set up a hotline where people can inform on Jewish-Arab relationships. And most recently, this happened last week, they began lobbying the government to prevent uh, religious Jewish women who volunteer in hospitals from being allowed to um, work in the hospitals after 9 p.m. out of fear that they'll date Arab doctors. Um, the econ economics minister, Naftali Bennett, who is now the head of the third largest party in Israel, Jewish Home, endorsed this campaign and the National Civil Service Division of the Israeli government implemented the ban on religious Jewish women working in hospitals after 9 p.m. These are the common daily um, um, outcomes and manifestations of the far-right trend in Israel, which will continue, and they're having harsh consequences on the streets. Where I stayed, and I, I write about this extensively in my book, where I stayed in central Jerusalem, there were mob attacks on Palestinians. Uh, including one young man named Jamal Julani, 19-year-old kid who was walking home through this crowded area right near Zion Square and was set upon by Jewish youth and beaten into a coma because a 15-year-old Jewish girl had said that he made a pass at her. Emmett Till style turned out to be false. The perpetrators were put on trial and one of them boasted that my only regret was that I didn't kill him. And so an Israeli newspaper sent a reporter down to Zion Square and found that racism was just flowing out into the streets. Um, the children would stand around, or the teenagers would 
basically stand around and chant death to Arabs all night. Um, this this is a video that's widely available on the internet, and it was just like the videos that I had filmed in that same area that I was heavily criticized for. I was trying to warn people of what the consequences are if the status quo continues, and I'm continuing to do that with this book, Goliath, Life and Loathing in Greater Israel. And finally, how do you think this will play out, if at all, in American politics? Well, it's playing out at the grassroots level. It's playing out on campuses like the one I visited last night, University of Virginia. And on campus after campus, I have pretty sizable audiences who want to come out and hear about this book. Um, and they're, they're mounting campaigns to divest from Israeli companies. But the campuses that the universities do business with, which are involved in the occupation of Palestine or involved in settlement activity, and we're, and we're seeing successes on American campuses, though we don't see any movement in Congress. But I think we have to look at the, and this, this is what's known, of, known as the BDS movement, or the movement to boycott, divest from, and sanction Israel. And we don't, and we don't see any action in Congress now, but the movement to boycott and divest from apartheid South Africa started in 1969, and it really took decades to get a divestment vote in the Senate and I think it was a Republican, Dick Luger, who cast the deciding vote to divest from apartheid South Africa. So we're going to see increasing pressure in the political system, and particularly in the Democratic Party. If you look at polls of grassroots Democrats, progressive Democrats, they are increasingly, uh, if not sympathetic to Palestinians, they increasingly don't see Israel as a potential, uh, as, as serious about the peace process, and they don't favor either side, whereas the Republicans overwhelmingly, which are dominated by older evangelicals, are overwhelmingly pro-Israel and are being actively courted by the Israel lobby. So we're seeing the republicanization of pro-Israel support in the U.S., deepening conflict inside the Democratic Party. And if you look at the most recent Pew poll on Jewish attitudes, where only 11% of secular Jews declared that they see Israel as the promised land, which was given to God by God to the Jewish people, whereas 83% of evangelicals do. And you, and you look at the fact that over 40% of American Jews don't believe that Netanyahu is serious about peace. Um, you can see deepening conflict and rancor among Jews over this issue. And this doesn't bode well for a state of Israel, which is determined to continue its occupation and deepen um, the horrifying facts on the ground. Max Blumenthal, the book is Goliath, Life and Loathing in Greater Israel, just out from Nation Books. Max, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.